Okay. Got it. Thank you, Cass. Okay, sorry, live from Salt Lake City, Utah. This is Heart of the Matter. Espresso. Espresso means we're going to go quick with some information, and uh, then we're going to open up the phone lines, and when we come back from a spot, if there are no calls, we're wrapping it up. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, come to you, and we seek you in spirit and truth. We seek to fortify our spirits and, and our souls, and to know you better through the discussions we have, and uh, seek your guidance by your spirit and your word. We pray for our volunteers and everybody who uh, d uh, works to put these things together, our studio audience, people who are watching from home, and who will watch in the archives. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you who live in Logan, Utah, or up in uh, uh, Preston, Idaho, up in that area, this might be of interest to you. On Wednesday night, June 21st, 7 p.m., uh, Warren Puckett of Breaking Bread and myself are going to be going up to uh, Preston, Idaho to talk about Mormonism and Christianity and a relationship with the Lord. Uh, we'll be bringing up our, uh, uh, all of our books. We'll give those away, of course. And uh, if, if anybody wants them, all are welcome. And uh, Warren and I will talk. Q&A as well. Address is 532 East, 800 South Preston. It's right on the main road going in, they tell me, and a house right on the outskirts of Preston. So that's Wednesday, June 21st, 2017, from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m. Join us if you're from that area. We used to do a thing called Heart in the Homes, and we go around to different homes. That was 10 years ago, and people would open up their home in different parts, and then people from that community would come, and we would do this. It was really fun, and we're doing it again because of our dear sister Ruth. So have a good friend. His name's Dave Bartosowitz. Many of you may know him from, uh, he has left Mormonism and he has an online ministry to help reach people. Recently, Dave found uh, a religious home in Greek Orthodoxy, much like Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man. And like most acolytes or uh, uh, new people to a faith, he has perhaps unwisely, we all do unwise things, and I'm not criticizing Dave, but because I've done things like this too. He's touted the marvels of his newly discovered faith online. And of course, the fallout has been he's getting assassinated. I mean, assassinated online for saying, hey, I, I, I really do like Greek Orthodoxy. Now, you know, I'm not a universalist or an ecumenical, ecumenical or a syncretist at all. I have no real appreciation of brick and mortar churches combining together to make a worldwide force. Uh, I don't think it will ever happen. But, you know, maybe we're at a point in our Christian history that at the grassroots level, individual sold-out Christians can begin to gently defend everybody's right to pursue their Christianity through whatever religious outreach they want. If someone wants to be a, a Catholic, why don't more Christians start defending that right? If they want to be a Baptist, if they want to be Presbyterian, Calvinist, if they want to be Greek Orthodox, even if they want to be Mormon, Seventh-day Adventist, or Jehovah's Witness, Jesus is in there. There are ideas that aren't agreed upon in those things, but there's ideas that aren't agreed upon within the Baptists themselves. So when are we going to give people, the benefit of the doubt, who say Jesus is my Lord and Savior, hey, that's up to them to find out if it really is, and who live by the Spirit, and let's all just start 
backing off on attacking individuals. Now, if an individual comes up and says, hey, I'm LDS, I want to talk to you about your faith, by all means, we do that all the time. Open up what you think. Open up what you think about the institution. But there's no need to attack the individual. We don't war against flesh and blood. Listen, I publicly support Dave Bardo and, and Hank Hennegraaff and whoever else is being maligned for their choice in religious expression. And here are the reasons why. All Christians are both responsible and they possess the right to worship God through Christ in whatever way they personally desire. You know, we are very different. There are people who are very, very charismatic. They love uh, uh, very emotional ways, and their way may be better than mine. I'm, I'm much more acerbic and, and, and cynical and critical, and I don't go that much personally for the emotional uh, stuff, but that does not mean I'm better or they're worse or vice versa. So the other thing is Christians are Christians by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, not the church they attend. They are not Christians by the church they attend. And there is no theological, practical, or ritualistic thing a person can choose that can take away their Christianity. If I was someone who follows Christ, and I do, and I see him as my Lord and Savior, and I believe that I need to be washed with baptismal holy water every day. That's my right. I have liberty to do that, and no one should criticize me for that. But it's like I learned in, in, uh, at Calvary Chapel School of Ministry, Christians eat their young. Christians cannibalize each other. We can't wait to take out the sword and start stabbing at people who do things differently than us. But scripture says we don't war against flesh and blood and, and our war is against other things. Now, if you want to go against, go after the Pope, you want to go after the LDS hierarchy, you want to go after the Southern Baptist Convention or whatever, and they're ways, that's one thing. You're not going after the men, you're just going after what that institution represents. But even then, I don't know. Uh, if we claim Christ, let's be as Christ was. And let's, you know, remember what he said in Mark chapter 9? Hey, uh, John comes to him and says, there's a guy over there, he doesn't follow us, and he's using your name to, to cast out demons, and shall we call down the fires of heaven, or he did that to the Samaritans. Jesus says, you have no idea what spirit you're of. Leave him alone. He's not against us. He's for us, right? And with that, how about a moment from our board of direction? Okay, um, don't pay attention to this. I'm going to slip over here. We have a new trainee who's doing that. Just kidding. Uh, should I move over so that... I don't know. Should I move? He's getting, He's getting it. Okay. Whenever a group of people decide to get together and achieve something or accomplish something, there's always going to be a burden uh, placed upon some of those people. It happens when groups come together. And so, and there's typically, there's the 80-20 rule. 80% uh, uh, of the work is done by 20% of the people. You've heard of that? Typically, that's true. So in gatherings, there's always going to be thankless contributions and there's going to be 
expectations on people and demands placed upon people. And perhaps these are unfortunate realities are relative to the size and scope of the institution involved. In other words, if you create a group that is uh, small and low maintenance with low overhead, uh, with minimalist demands, then perhaps the burdens and the demands upon those people would be low and minimalist. Uh, but if the institution desires or is and gets large and complex, then the burdens and the manipulations and the demands become larger and more complex. So we might liken an extremely low overhead uh, uh, religious institution to a five foot by five foot square piece of concrete and it takes one person, uh, it's his job to take care of that space. Every week, it's his job to take care of that slab of concrete. This, of course, is the minimalist approach to religion. Okay, so obviously, if this five square feet of concrete could hold five people, then they could gather together as five people. They'd have to maybe sweep it off once a week, and, and that would be it. But it's, it's when the religions start to want to, you know, become superpowers, and they start having these high-rises of religion and or giant campuses of religion that the uh, the uh, complexity of the demands grows. So um, in religion, bigger often is justified as better serving more souls. And we have to ask ourselves, how are they being served? Are they truly better? And let me just give you one more example. Let's say there are two sets of parents and each of them have a son. One set of parents says, we want our son, boy A, to have all the creature comforts of life, to not have to worry about anything, to be involved in all the things imaginable, to live in a beautiful, huge mansion, to be lavished with entertainments and, and gifts, uh, parties, birthday celebrations, and never have to really work too hard. We want life to be easy on him, all right? But the second set of parents have boy B, and they believe that doing that to a child can actually hurt them by indulging their every want. So they approach his life through some reasonable erudition, which means they are they are trying to teach him about spiritual things, spiritual matters. They're, they're erudite. They're, they're having him learn about things that are a little deeper. And yeah, they allow him to participate in other things kids do, but they're not fanatics about the things of this world. But the foundation boy B is being raised upon is not on creature comforts and not on outward things, but on inward things. And so we have boy A, outward creature comforts, luxuries, and we have boy B, inward, spiritual, having a foot in the world, but, but not, you know, being all about it. Their second approach echoes 2 Corinthians 4.18, and it says, while we look not at the things which are seen, that's the creature comforts, but at the things which are not seen, that's the inward part. Ready? For the things which are seen are temporal, and that means earthly, but temporal, from that word, we get the word temporary. They are temporary. Listen. But the things which are not seen are 
eternal. That's what it says. So when we're raising boy A and boy B, we say to ourselves, do we want boy A to have just only temporal uh, uh, investment? Or do we want all people to be invested in the invisible, which is the eternal? So if you take that and you look at this example, which one is, is, is a better way to approach religion? Now, it's so intriguing to me that in several places in the New Testament, God is described as invisible, okay? But our focus and worship is often aimed at the visible. So we, we, abs- we, we worship an invisible God, and Jesus isn't with us, and the Holy Spirit isn't seen, but we put a lot of attention in our worship of him on the visible when our God is invisible. So it seems to me that church should be going after the way you raise boy B and not really focusing, trying to make it more minimalist and less burdensome and then be able to build on the invisible things because that's what our God is to us. He's invisible. Of course, we see him in nature, et cetera, et cetera. Do you know, it amazes me, it says God does not dwell in temples made with hands, but most religions, the institution, strives to make things with hands in order to worship him. Do you start to see how there's a disconnect in what we're doing? There isn't a consistency between how, how the scripture describes God, how scripture describes uh, how he is and what he works through, what is eternal versus temporal, but yet our relationship to him in religion is almost always on this side and not so much on that side. So the idea that material religious institutions are corrupt to some extent is obvious. They are, they always will be. But the real issue, try to get this point, is that most religious men and women work very hard to make their churches bigger and more complex, not smaller and less complex. All the while, which making something bigger and more complex is tantamount to making it more corrupt, more demanding, and more manipulative by very, that's very nature. Isn't that weird that when you get a group of people together, a board of elders, a deacon's board, and they sit around at the meeting, they try to come up with ways to be bigger, which is tantamount to being more temporal, less invisible, and less spiritual. Now, I know that sounds like the ravings of a madman in some sense, but they're not. It's really very clear. It's very simple, but we don't do it. It all, I mean, look at the Catholic Church. They're the ones who started building the cathedrals. And so everybody, even the Protestant Reformation, they started building the big things. I have to hand it to the Jehovah's Witnesses. They try to at least keep it minimal. I mean, they don't put, they're not really ornate. They're just kind of boxy little buildings. I mean, I, I hand it to them. We can learn something from them because they don't, although they do have ties and they have a huge publishing company, but so maybe that's where all the money goes, but still they do in terms of their physical edifice, they go small. So I think there's a call for 
Christians today to start trying to persuade the church of their flavor, their pastor, their reverend, their bishop, their, hey, we don't want this. We don't want to build more. We want to deconstruct. We want less so that it reflects what Scripture says about what we see being temporal and what we don't see being eternal and God being invisible and etc., etc. When and if organized religion is reduced down to manageable proportions, when overhead is minimalized, and it can be done, when requests for involvement and expectations and participation are eliminated, the corruption and the burden and the alienation that comes when you can't meet the burden will also be minimalized and believers will become emancipated. They'll become emancipated from the mindset that's just like the world, like a corporate mindset. And they'll be able to see a distinct difference between what it means to be in a church that has a, proposes a relationship with God over a materialistic relig- uh, uh, engagement with him. So we are striking at the root instead of hacking at the branches. And we have at the far left of the chart, are we set up, okay, Larry, the word victory in Christ, his victory. Notice that H-I-S, it's Christ's victory. This is the box, this is the, the, the heading. And then we have the scriptural precedent to back up what his victory brings to us. And then we have wonderful results as a result of his victory. And then we have the religious response to what his victory has brought. And then we have the horrible results of the religious response. And last week, we covered the good news. And we talked about the scriptural precedent of the good news. And what was it? To come and buy without money or price. And it's the good news to the whole world. And we talked about the, the, the freedom and the gratitude and the... Um, liberty that comes with this good news. And then we went in and we said the religious precedent to the good news is that's not enough. The good news is not enough. Or it's uh, there's more that is needed, which is similar to that not being enough. There needs to be a maintenance of your good news. You need to do this now that you've received the good news. And the end result we said, I'm going to skip those boxes, was bad news. When religions get a hold of the good news, the end result is horrible. It's bad news. So that was the first thing we said, the few do to puppeteer the many. Okay, let's go to the second one. And that is through his victory. Number two is there is the unburdening of cares. The unburdening of cares. So let's look backward. I'm going to the other seat, Larry. <coughs> let's look backward to recorded biblical history. Generally speaking, when the world fell due to Adam's sin, all of us thereafter were born into a realm of life of burdens. Um, we have had to live with pain and discomfort, and labors that aren't easy. And these pains and discomforts often come from things like just the unknown. Um, We get angst. 
we get anxiety. We have depression associated with the unknown. And then they also come from living with physical and psychological and emotional and spiritual pain. And those are co- that's caused by guilt and shame and sin and our fears. All of that is all wrapped up into one ugly seething ball of cancer. And so we are born into this, right? And it's all part and parcel of this burdensome fallen world. So many people I've talked to for years about what they sensed when they came to know Christ was, I felt a weight fall off my back. That's how many people describe it. I I felt, some say scales from their eyes, some say a weight uh, fell off their back. So as a temporary means to ameliorate, big word, the effects of those burdens, God said, I'm going to take a nation And out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and out of Jacob's 12 sons, I'm going to take this nation and I'm going to unburden them by giving them a systematized order of burdens called the law. And if they obey that law, they are going to have relief to guilt and shame and fear by sacrifice. And so God gave them this law, but it was a burden and in, and it granted some certainties to the children of Israel, but it also kept them in chains. So that burden wasn't entirely lifted. God just gave them a temporary stopgap measure between what we come into in this world with and then having something with God that gave us some access to make him happy when we made mistakes. But God promised that nation and all the world that followed after therein, a savior who would emancipate them, who would actually free them up. So with this savior came the promise of liberty and from the effects of the fall, from the effects of the law, from the pain of our sin, liberty from the fear of death, which most people have, uh, the uncertainties that we all face as human beings, This Savior came and he brought this and nailing the the law to his cross. Job asked a funny question. He says, who has sent out the wild ass free? Or who has loosed the bands of the wild ass? And whenever I read that in my scriptures, I have a little picture of an ass, not an ass, but a donkey. And it says, this is me. Jesus has set this wild ass free. Okay, when I would retaliate in in anger or violence, often it was out of fear that that person would hurt me first. Now I can back off better and et cetera, et cetera. Isaiah 58, six says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? Talking about fasting for the nation of Israel to loose the bands of wickedness and undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free and that ye break every yoke. So even in the Old Testament, there's a picture of what this Messiah would do for people when he enters into their life. He will set you free by unburdening you of the stuff we carry around with us. Of course, when God's only human son walked the earth, uh, complete God in him, fully man, he goes into the synagogue one Sabbath day and he opens up the scriptures. And, which was the Old Testament, and it's Isaiah 61.1. You all know the story. And he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me 
because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Brokenhearted binding it up means you put that heart back together to proclaim liberty to the captives, liberty and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. He adds one more thing. He shuts the scripture and he says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. I mean, that is so radical. He's saying, I'm the guy who's come to liberate you. Yahweh anointed Jesus to preach good tidings, as we talked about last week, to the meek, to bind up the heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, opening of the prison door to them that are bound. What great news. I mean, that's what we talked about, the good news. We share that. Did you know this was done for you? Did you know that Jesus did this for you? And the freedom and liberty, the death to the law, the sin is overcome, the prison doors are open, all mankind are free, uh, death is overcome, death is overcome. You want to sit down and talk about that? We can't. Hell is overcome and cast away. Satan is in the lake of fire, I believe. All of it done. He has had the victory, all the burdens of every type gone in and through him. No longer under the burden of sin. No longer under the burden of the law. No longer do you have to fear death. All right? So quite frankly, in the face of sound New Testament understanding of with a proper eschatological exegesis, big mouthful, there's no fear of Satan or hell or an unsettling, rapturous second coming to wipe you out. You don't have to be shaken to be ready. You've got to be ready for your death, but... All of it's been done. The victory had. And all we are left with because of him is his victory over sin and death and hell and the law. Praise God, right? We praise God for this. Did he do it? Some say no. They say it every day of the week. And they're Christians. These things were not accomplished through him, they say. What? You mean we still have to fear? We still have the shame? We still have the guilt? We still have sin? We still have to fear hell? We still have to fear death? We still have to fear a second coming that he's coming to wipe us out? We still have to fear obedience to laws? I mean, did he do anything? Did he accomplish anything at all? They say no. They say you can still sin. They say you, you still got to fear hell. If you don't do this, you don't do that. Or if you haven't been elected by God, they say you got you to gotta fear this and, and, and be shamed of that. And, and they, all this stuff, and they act like he didn't do it. So this is what religion, remember, oh, we were at, uh, at campus last week and we talked about uh, relegare is the Latin root word for religion. And it means to bind to bind means to tie you up. So relegare, religion, ties you up with some form or another of this and reburdens you so that you start packing the stuff back on. You start packing it back on. And you be, oh, I got to trudge up that hill. It's Sunday. I got to do this. Cause, and, you know, it's really bad. So let's go back to the board. Uh, Larry, going back to the board. And let's talk about the unburdening of cares. And I'll just be quick on this. 
when it came to this, the scriptural precedent, I'll just give you a couple. Jesus said, my yoke, my yoke, his victory, my yoke is easy. That's a burden, a yoke. He says it's easy. Now, if Jesus says it's easy, how does it get hard? It gets hard by men and women telling us differently. Don't believe them. It's not true. Walk in faith. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. What did he say? He said, you, because of his victory, come to me. I will give you rest. Rest. A burden, you can't rest. You are tired from bearing it. He gives rest. So his yoke is easy. He gives rest. And yet, even with that victory, the wonderful results are multi multiplicitous. Let me just tell you. We, I've said them already. They're freedom. That is the greatest burden you can uh, uh, unburden yourself with is through freedom. And then liberty. They're different, but I'm not going to talk about how tonight because of time. There is, we are dead to the law. Every, any, all kinds of laws, except those that are mentioned in the New Testament, which is to love. And it is there in the New Testament for those of you who say, well, how do we know? It's to love. That, now, that can be a burden, but through Christ, it's not. Through yourself, it is. So you got to learn that. But we're dead to the laws, the rules that they, that they all make, right? And then sin is gone. Yay. <laughs> exactly. Yay. Sin is gone. So people have a hard time with that. Well, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. No. Look, it either paid for it and he had the victory or he didn't. If you believe in him, he did. And therefore sin is gone. But I looked at porn last night and did the dirty deed with my neighbor's dog and, and I just, I just, it, I, that's sinful, Sean. It, it's what was sinful about it is you didn't have enough faith and you didn't have enough love for your neighbor's dog and your neighbor. And that's what led you. That's where you failed. But that sin of what you did is gone. If you live constantly by sin, being able to come back up because of your failures, you are burdened. That's what religions do. They bind you with your sin. The only way I could overcome my sin nature effectively, efficiently, and truly was when I was taught through the radio that my sin is gone. A guy named Dr. Um, uh, George something. He taught this. Your sin is gone. And I heard that. And he said, the sin is faithlessness and failing to love. But that's a separate subject. Right now, we're just talking about the sins of the flesh. They're gone. When I learned that, I was empowered to then let them go. But as long as you are fighting that war with it, forget it. So the preaching of sin is anathema to his victory. Just ask somebody if they bring up your sin or their sin. Just ask them, when did Jesus pay for sin? 2,000 years ago. Did he pay for it all? Yes, he did. Whole world? Yep then what are you talking about sin for? Okay, it's radical. It's tough for people, but it's true. All right, we also have death. Guess what? It's is overcome. All men 
all women, everybody will live past this life. Death is overcome. All right? I believe his victory crushed that final enemy spiritually too. I believe that he had the victory for the whole world and all will be reconciled. Not all will be saved, but all will ultimately be reconciled to him because of Christ's victory. The rewards and, and that stuff's a different story. But I'm just telling you, his victory is that deep in my heart that he's done it for everybody. You don't have to fear that because it has been done. Now, rewards and bad deeds, that's another thing. And I don't mean sin. I just mean living a life of selfishness. Whole other topic. And finally, and I can, we're going to prove this in later shows, Satan is over. His head was crushed. I'll prove it through scripture. So all the talk about Satan coming in and, and doing this and talking about Satan, it's just like talking about sin. It just keeps it alive in your life. Now, is there darkness? Sure. And are humans depraved? Absolutely. And can we do bad things and all that? Sure, 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 sure. But I'm just telling you principally, his victory gives us freedom, liberty. We're dead to the law. Sin is gone. Death is overcome. And Satan is over. And as we get into the topic of Satan in, in the months to come, you'll understand from the scriptures how it says he crushed his head. He's done for. All right. Now we come to this, the religious response. And what do they say? No freaking way. Because they live on this stuff. They survive by keeping you under the law or a law, any law. They survive by taking your freedom. They survive by making sure you think you have sinned. So you'll come back and keep going and feeding their coffers. They survive by you fearing when you die that Jesus hasn't had the victory. They survive by keeping Satan going, that he's out as a roaring lion to get you. That's how they survive. They give you the enemy. Scripturally, it can, I will, we will prove that this is not true. You can believe the scripture or you can believe the guy who's trying to keep you in bondage. But they say there's no way. There's no way, right? So what have they done? They take the victory out of his hands and they replace upon all of us burdens. And so on this end, we have burdens, the horrible result of not taking Jesus' victory seriously, and we have part of his victory being the unburdening of our cares. Sometimes when we do things wrong, we want to feel bad. We want to be beaten. We want to be made to feel guilty, ashamed. So we can, we can make penance, and we can pay a little more, or we can be a little more active, so it will help our flesh feel like God has forgiven us. That is all the flesh that's doing it. That's, but the spirit says, I have lost, I have lessened in faith. I have failed in love toward my fellow man or toward you, God. But I know you paid for my sins and I know I am free. That pleases God, according to Hebrews. That is what makes him happy. Let's open up the phone lines, 801-590-8413. While we are preparing to take your call, if you make one, let's go to this spot.
I focus on the LDS Church because I was LDS for 40 years. I understand it well from first-hand experience. And uh, that's kind of where God has put me, to talk about Mormonism. Part of that discussion includes talking about Christianity. We've discovered that you don't just have a discussion about Mormonism, because what happens is you bring people out of the Mormon church, and then they're left with uh, quite a mess in the Christian church. So I talk about both. I was LDS for 40 years. I've now been a Christian for nearly 20, and I understand both sides, and that's where my heart is. That's where God has put us, so that's what I do. That music was by Steve Utley, who's in our audience right now. Can you, can you hear that jamming sounds? A round of applause for Steve Utley, ladies and gentlemen. All right, Connie from Arizona, line one. Connie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hello, Sean. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Connie? Good. I've been watching your show now for about six months, and you have taught me a lot. I really do appreciate that, brother. Oh, well, praise God. You're, you're welcome. I learned, too, right along with you. <laughs> That's the way it should be. Um, there was some kind of an event in 1861 with, between the government and the Mormons, I believe. Connie. Is that a reformation? Connie, are you on a speakerphone by any chance? Yes. Let me get off it. Thank you. Better? Oh, so much better. Ask that again. Okay. In 1861, was there not a, uh, some kind of a condition or agreement or contract between the federal government and the LDS Mormons in Utah? Uh, there, there was a number of agreements between Brigham Young and the Utah Mormons and the federal government. They went back and forth on the polygamy issue. And, uh, and then they also went back and forth on whether the federal government should send troops out here. So I don't know, I'm specifically 1861, what actually happened then. But yes, there were a number of agreements that, it's, it's, uh, I'm trying to think of Mountain Meadows Massacre, I think is probably the best book by Will Bagley on the subject of that. Okay, yeah, it was something to the effect of um, uh, LDS claiming entitlements over their people or because of the land agreement or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't recall it, my sister. Okay. Yeah, I've just been running across problems with the LDS living in Arizona. Yeah, <laughs> Arizona has a lot of LDS people, don't they? Yeah, they sure like their ways. Yeah, well, you just keep sharing Jesus with everyone you meet, my sister. All right, thank you, brother, and keep up the good work. Thanks for watching. Okay, bye-bye. God bless, bye-bye. There are no more calls. We're out of here. See you next week on Heart of the Matter. <laughs> I'm on a ride Going nowhere I am an existential cowboy On the wind And I won't become This man's awake, a storm's arising, the dawn's awaiting till a hundred